Welcome to the Meb Favor Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Welcome to the podcast, friends. Today, we have a very special local guest, Pete Medina. Welcome to the show, Pete. Thanks, Meb. It's great to be here. So I've known Pete for going on a decade now. Pete is currently Director of Research at Northern Trust under Wealth Management. His background was did a local undergrad at UCLA, did grad school in Europe. Were both of those business? Study something else? Yeah, economics and business. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then uh, stints at my CFO, Waterline, which then Northern Trust acquired, right? That's right. Acquired about five years ago. Mm-hmm. And so I first met Pete. We, uh, we both kind of exist in with one leg in this mm-hmm. academic writing world. And Pete has written an enormous amount of papers. And so I remember way back when I was doing my first book, conversing with Pete over some ideas. And so we started a yearly habit of grabbing beers at a great local gastropub called Simsy's, talking about financial markets. I imagine boring to tears anyone sitting around us, <laughs> but having a good time. So today we actually, uh, we grabbed a few beers left over from Patrick's podcast a few weeks ago. They're kind of the remnants. So we have a Lagunitas Pale oat ale, and what do you have there? I have a uh, Celebrator Bavarian Double Bock. Yeah, and then the other three were totally undrinkable, sort of weird flavors, so no one in the office even wanted them. So today we're cleaning it out regardless. Pete and I um, have pretty esoteric interest in markets, and a lot of this could have the ability to go down kind of a dark, deep wonky finance hole. So we'll try to pull back every once in a while if we're getting a little too too deep on this. But Pete's written a bunch of papers. How many papers have you written at this point? I mean, numerous articles, I'd say six academic peer-reviewed journal published papers and one in peer review, about to go to peer review at this point. We, we talked about this the other day. I actually have much less patience for the time required for a peer review process. I need, I need much more immediate feedback. Um, there's a funny story. When I put out my first and only academic paper, it was in my late 20s, Journal of Wealth Management, which you've had a bunch come out in, and I remember checking it every day, trying online to see when it came out, because I was really excited, really proud of it. It comes out at night, and it says, Quant Approach to Tactical Asset Allocation by Melanie Faber. <laughs> and I was so sad and just panicking and just emailing everyone at the staff at Journal of Wealth Management. If you're listening, I apologize now. But saying, please, dear God, tell me this is not coming out in the print version. Thankfully, they fixed it in time. But uh, not only did they get the name wrong, they got the gender wrong as well. So anyway, so what we're going to do today, we're going to talk about a lot of different topics. I'm going to try to use this guidepost, some of Pete's papers. And so there's a lot of really interesting ones. If you've been a blog reader for years, you've definitely seen me mention a number of Pete's uh, ideas before. So let's talk about a more recent one. And this was a paper called 
Optimal lifetime asset allocation with goal-based life cycle glide pass. That's a mouthful. Came out journal wealth management this summer. Right. That's right. actually pretty Rec- recent. Recent issue, I think. And know. and for all the papers that we can link to, we will. Some of these are behind uh, some of the journal gates, but there's shorter versions and articles, and we'll put them all in the show notes online at the podcast link. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what this paper is about, you know, why you wrote it and what's the uh, kind of some of the main takeaways. And we'll I'll interject and ask questions along the way. Yeah, no, thanks, Melanie. Uh, I mean, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and I just really quickly, I agree with your sentiment. Every time I finish one of these papers, I promise myself I'll never do another one. And unfortunately, ultimately, my curiosity gets the best of me. I've never been able to write a book like you have, though, because I don't really have the patience to go more than 30 or 40 pages. Well, but see, that's the thing is that most of my, many of my books are like 30 or 40 pages. So I just call them books and get away with them being books, whereas many of your papers are probably longer than my. You'll have to teach my, me the art of yeah. expanding it right. out then yeah no i mean i think you know i'm i'm very excited about this particular paper I, i've done a lot of different research that i think is really interesting and helpful to investors um, i'm all about hey what can we what can we do to kind of create the research that's empirical and academically rigorous and the economic insights that are relevant and practical to real world investors all in the effort to create better investment outcomes for for both our clients in Northern Trust and frankly, just broadly in the in the universe. And I'm really excited about this particular paper because it really does a lot in solving, I think, a lot of problems that have been out there for a long time, whether you're talking about more important perhaps to most people is, you know, the retirement space. Do I have enough to fund my retirement? What's the optimal lifetime asset allocation? Not just that asset allocation today, but over the course of my life, when I consider everything I'm trying to do, all the goals I may have, the risk preferences I may have, you know, I may have more than one goal. These things can be heterogeneous rather than kind of a, you know, a simple liability profile like a pension plan, which is homogeneous. Well, what's an example of some of these goals? Well, I mean, you know, the, the clearest and most important one is a lifetime consumption goal. And you might think of that as your consumption in retirement. If you're a high net worth investor, you know, you may be consuming from that portfolio today. So that's the simplest one. And that's sort of the liability of a pension plan. It's analogous to that type of a liability. But the reality is in private wealth, goals are more multifaceted and, and more complex or more heterogeneous than just that simple you know, lifetime liability. You may have, um, in addition to, you know, ongoing consumption, there could be ad hoc consumption goals, a second home, air transportation, a yacht, whatever may be the case, or, you know, wealth transfer objectives to the next generation. Maybe funding a trust or Absolutely, or philanthropy, which is a really critical goal for very many um, wealthy investors. And, you know, all of these can have different risk preferences. They occur at different points of time. They have different priorities. And so, therefore, they ought to have, you know, different asset allocations attached to them that all roll up into kind of an optimal lifetime asset allocation. You also talk about things in this paper like human capital. So, one, goals-based already is a little bit different than most people already think about it. Most people, you know, as investors, they think about a all-in asset allocation. You know, they think about whether they have 10 accounts or whatever, they think this is how I allocate. And the goals-based is a little more about, hey, you're saving for buying a house in five years or 20 years or whatever it may be. You're saving for retirement. You're saving for this endowment. All those may have different asset allocation profiles. Right. You would end up investing in different ways for all of those. But one of the other interesting parts about this paper is also you talk a little bit about human capital, right? which a lot of advisors and investors don't think about. Well, you, you hit on a really important aspect of this. So first of all, let me step back a second and say, you know, as a first principle, we argue that assets should serve a purpose, 
right? And if they, if they serve a purpose, you know, that purpose is really to fund a lifetime of financial goals. So if you start from that, that perspective, assets serve a purpose, that purpose is to fund a lifetime of financial goals. You step back and you would simply note that, you know, for the most part, the idea of maximizing return per unit of risk is not really a goal. It's a means to achieving a goal. Right. And so when we realize that assets serve a purpose, it's to fund a profile of goals. We have to work backwards in solving that puzzle from the perspective of those goals. And those goals at the highest level really are either consumption or gifts, right? You can either consume them yourself or you're going to give them away either to your kids or to philanthropy or something or, or to taxes or for government. Yeah. Or, or to a state tax. So you want to be really thoughtful and about how you think about your goals. Cause if you're not, you'll have a disproportionate share of it go away to a state tax. So that's the first principle. From there, if we recognize that you know assets serve a purpose to fund a lifetime of goals, we realize that optimal lifetime asset allocation has to include a number of concepts. It has to consider your unique profile of goals as a starting point. It has to consider your unique profile of assets, some of which are portfolio assets, but a lot of them may not be portfolio assets. They may be things like human capital, pensions, future inheritances. There's a number of things that are assets that ultimately will fund these goals and affect the optimal lifetime asset allocation. And so I, I assume you guys some use some in-house software for this to aid in some of the approach? Right. I mean, this is a novel approach to asset allocation. I mean, it's theoretically sound and built on what's called an intertemporal capital asset pricing model. That's a mouthful. Yeah, it really is. But just so you know, leading financial economic economists have pretty much argued more recently 2014 2015 that recent that really an ICAPM or an intertemporal capital asset pricing model ought to be the benchmark for multi-period or what we call intertemporal portfolio theory so i know we're going down a rabbit hole a little bit here but it's important to realize that what we built here is a very practical goals-based approach anchored to you know what the leading financial economists today are arguing is really the benchmark for portfolio theory. And I'm trying to think as far as the retail-facing crowd, the advisor, the average investor out there. I know Morningstar does some here. It's not particularly developed. I know Betterment is a goals-based advisor. I, I'm just not that familiar with the software right. and who else is actually doing this in the space. If I do a little research, I'll add some to the show notes. I can't think of many that off the top of my head. I know Morningstar talks a lot about this. I don't know if they have a good software suite that aids in it. Right. What are some of the takeaways for this? If you had to take a step back and say, okay, how does this really impact people's allocation? Is there a certain kind of broad takeaway you could mention such as, oh, well, it ends up in people having more in bonds or maybe yeah what's the are there any sort of hard and fast takeaways or no no what you end up well you hit on a number of things here first of all what you get essentially is a customized glide path over your own life cycle unique to your own assets goals and risk preferences because most most glide paths just say more in stocks and risk assets the older you get the less and there's no theory behind it other than you know implicitly you know, you have a reduction in human capital, and that's really the only academic justification for for a glide path or a changing asset allocation through time is you have hu- more human capital when you're younger and less when you're older. So your bonds replace your human capital as you get older. There's a couple more justifications like mean reversion and things like that that can justify dynamic asset allocations. But fundamentally, the outcome here is not a static portfolio that might be an output of traditional portfolio theory but actually a dynamic and adaptive asset allocation, a unique customized glide path unique to you that's adaptive through time based on your unique assets 
goals and risk preferences and how those change through over the course of your life. And I think that's sort of the novelty. And yeah, you know, there are other goals-based methods. Uh, in my opinion, I argue it in the paper, some of them are built off of, for example, using shortfall probability as a definition of risk. That's problematic in a number of, for a number of technical reasons. The most important of which is that you might have a low shortfall probability, but that also may mean that, you know, that fundamentally with the trade-off there is that you hi- have a higher potential magnitude of, of potential shortfalls. I also appreciate in the paper that you talk about people with a living to the age of 100. <laughs> right. That's, so adapting that's a, a little 98th bit. percentile outcome. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, that's an adaptive framework, right? You can pick and choose your life expectancy and you can adjust and adapt over time. And also I point out, I think an important application here more as you go into kind of, you know, the defined contribution 401k space is going to be longevity insurance. You know, this idea of deferred income annuities, not as investment vehicles, but as, you know, any good insurance product should do. It's really about transferring risk. And in this case, it's about transferring longevity risk, the risk that you'll outlive your portfolio. In this paper, was it mainly considering stocks and bonds? You, you include some other assets? What's the, what's the universe in this? So the universe is all assets. And it's interesting, you know, you point to stocks and bonds. Uh, maybe we framed it that way as risky assets and safe assets, really. And largely, I mean, that's an interesting transition point to really risk factors, because really what we're talking about there are kind of the super risk premium or risk factors that are available in capital markets, the first of which we'll call the market factor, which is essentially equity or equity-like risk or default risk, and that's what's mostly driving the returns of private equity, public equities, hedge funds, uh, high-yield bonds. Uh, and then there's the term factor, which is really the, you know, the risk you, the risk you take on for bearing interest rate or duration risk. And that's more common to, you know, investment grade bonds. And so really, you know, it's not so much stocks and bonds, it's risky assets and maybe we'll call them safer assets. But fundamentally what we're talking about, there are two super factors that dominate the returns of capital markets. And that's the market factor and term factor. And so do you guys use this, this kind of asset allocation approach? This, I assume works with institutions as well. I mean, it's a little bit different. Many of them have super long-term horizons, a fairly set spending schedule, but they tend to have different goals and often unrealistic return (laughs) assumptions. But I assume it would apply similarly to institutions as it would to individuals as well. Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. This framework, you know, this framework applies. Well, first of all, I'll say, there's a couple of ways you can think about this. The framework that we talked about a moment ago, the goals-based framework, really applies to anybody or anything that has a liability profile. Now, again, it's most relevant to private wealth where goals are heterogeneous, right? A number of different goals with different risk preferences. But it's equally applicable and easy to apply to, you know, an institution with a with a homogeneous liability profile, a population of, of plan participants. Now, what you're really getting to is what I'll call factor-based asset allocation. You know, really with the introduction of smart beta products, you see increasing interest, not just in capturing, you know, smart beta, which is a term I hate. Uh, you know, we kind of refer to it as engineered beta type solutions. But, but fundamentally, what you're referring to is those sources, those underlying fundamental sources of return that drive capital market and portfolio returns, asset class returns, and in, in fact, you know, manager returns. And at the highest level, as I noted, there are two. You can, for each asset class, you can go deeper, and we, I'm sure we will in a moment. But what I want to point out is that you know at Northern Trust, we were pioneers in factor-based asset allocation. And even if you don't have a profile of goals to apply this method that I outline in this paper, 
really at the same time, even in the absence of goals, you can still apply this for more robust diversification because fundamentally what we're doing here is we're optimizing to find the optimal mix of risky assets, inclusive of hedge funds, private equity, et cetera, and then the optimal combination of safe assets, which are dominated by basically that term factor. And then we're able to, again, relying on this CAPM framework or ICAPM, I should say, intertemporal CAPM framework, we're able to combine these things in different mixes to create what's called a robust, what we call robust efficient frontier. And we're using robust here in the classic sense of the word, which means it can withstand any kind of risk environment because fundamentally risk assets and risk control assets, term term risk and market risk are uncorrelated. I've done a little bit of a two-step forward and backwards in between these two topics. But as we kind of transition into thinking about factors, you know, basically, you know, thinking about smart beta or any of these terms, just moving away from a lot of these market cap weighted indices into tilts or other asset classes. I've got about eight different papers I'm thinking of. Is there one in particular you think we could start to highlight and then move down the list? Or do you want to, is there, what's a good segue, do you think? You mean of the ones I've written? Yeah, the ones you've written. <laughs> I got a bunch. I mean, you know, let me, let me tee it up first and then maybe I'll let you kind yeah. of figure out which way you want yeah. to go. I mean, it's really interesting because, and again, this research started with work by Gene Fahm and Ken French in 1992 and 1993, where prior to their, their work in this space, there was recognition that, gosh, it seems like small cap stocks outperform large cap stocks. It seems like value stocks outperform growth stocks, things like that. And those were the, those were the big three. It was market, value, small cap. Yeah. And then the, the and biggest, the fourth, came along later. Yeah, right? momentum, which momentum. I know you're... <laughs> my, my favorite. You're, you're, you're hugely interested in. And mm-hmm. momentum, one of the most robust premia, came actually just a year later, a year or two later. What's interesting here isn't just that these things offer premia when you do them, you know, when you build them in a long short framework or even in a long only portfolio. It's not just that they offer premia, you know, uh, a, a source of return that is statistically significant. That's how I'll define a premium. It's not just a random result, but a robust or statistically significant premium. It's also that they do a very good job of explaining or spreading out risk across different portfolios. And so these things have been termed risk factors or compensated risk factors, not simply because they come with a return premium, that's extremely important, but also because they explain the return and risk across a broad set of different portfolios. And so that becomes really interesting because not only could you think about tilting away from the broad market to capture these risk premia in a long only or long short framework, but at the same time, you can think about evaluating total portfolios from this framework of risk factors, asset classes from this framework of risk factors, or even strategies and individual managers, you know, funds of individual managers, whether they're hedge funds, fixed income managers, or public equity managers. And so as you're starting to look at kind of distilling the returns of some of these managers or strategies or asset classes, is there a list of factors? Do you say, hey, look, here's the four main ones, or maybe here's the 10 main ones I use in descending order of importance, or here's the 70? I mean, how many are there typically you're using for this analysis? That's a great question. You know, you're you're seeking the most parsimonious model, really. And a lot of so-called factors, I mean, especially now with smart beta products, people are sort of inventing their own so-called factors. And a lot of these don't meet the same definitions that I noted earlier. You know, a robust risk premium, they're uncorrelated with each other. So they're unique and different from each other. And 
that they you know explain the return and risk abroad uh, you know spread return and risk apro- across a broad set of portfolios i call that the sort of the three primary criteria not all of them hit it as, as well but yeah we're looking for the most parsimonious model and I, you know at the portfolio level we think in terms of those two big ones the term factor and the market factor as we dig into the individual asset classes i think you can broaden it out right and so in equities you know especially nowadays i mean it started off as you note meb you know the first three were market the market factor, the return premium of stocks over cash, size factor, the return premium of small over large stocks, value factor, momentum factor. And now we know there's a newer factor that was discovered in 2013 by uh, an academic called Novi Marx that looks at profitability as a factor. And Fama French more recently actually added profitability and low investment, what some people call the combination of two is quote unquote quality as sort of the, you know, that additional lens to kind of view to view equity returns. As we go into fixed income, there's term risk and there's credit risk, a credit or default risk. It turns out really interestingly that credit slash default risk in the fixed income space is what we call a linear combination with the market factor. So fundamentally, it's, it's arguable that that's not a unique and different source of return. That's just a manifestation, maybe a nonlinear manifestation of market risk. Well, it's, it's, it's meaning you're kind of getting the same thing in a different form. So there's some overlap. Well, I mean, I think you're getting the same thing. You're getting market risk. But, you know, as, as Merton had shown a long time ago uh, and is increasingly becoming part of fixed income models. You should. It's basically a call option on you know on the assets of the and firm. This, so. this happens in a lot of asset classes. So a lot of people will think you know they'll buy eight different U.S. equity ETFs or mutual funds and think they're diversified. You know they own a large cap growth, yeah. a small cap value, a mid cap go anywhere, and they just basically get the S and P. And in in another kind of another way of saying it, you know we say this now. It's not always true, but you know buying say emerging markets commodities short dollar is kind of all the same trade, or at least it has been for the last few years. You know, they're totally different asset classes, totally different, but there's probably a fair amount of overlap. Yeah. I mean, you know, you might have, so again, getting back to what a true factor is versus things and risks folks consider in their portfolio that don't rise to the level of a true factors. You may consider currency risk. You may consider the price of oil. There are a lot of things you can consider in your asset allocation, but the reality is none of those really rise to this level of pricing the risk and return of portfolios. And I think that's the really important nuance of, of factors. And, and, you know, when you step back and you build the analytical tools from a factor based perspective, you have a very powerful perspective that you can apply to evaluating the skill of managers, evaluating the risk of managers and your broader portfolio. So for example, you know, we found overwhelmingly in the equity side, we can use market size, value, and momentum. Frankly, market size and value do the heavy lifting there. But overwhelmingly, 95, 96% of the return variation of all managers and funds in the Morningstar database are explained by, explained by those basic factors. Really, you add, you know, you can add momentum and profitability to that mix, as we noted earlier, additional factors in that space. And the lion's share, not almost all the alpha goes away. And so really, that gets back to once you realize that you really realize that these things are driving not just the return, but the compensated return, and therefore the risk, the compensated risk of these of these strategies. I wrote uh, an you know an article or my team and I wrote an article, I should say, I've got a number of great folks on, on my team that that helped me out. But we wrote an article on the equity side that applies this, these basic principles to you know manager to the mutual fund database over the last five years, and we found precisely what they found in the academic space. 
wrote a paper last year on hedge funds. Now there's certainly a broader set of risk factors involved in hedge funds. So, you know, hedge funds are multi-asset class portfolios, multi-asset class strategies. We said before that like, you know, describing a, saying a hedge fund is kind of like describe just saying like dog, right? Like it's, yeah, totally. it's, it's a hugely different universe. Now when you put them all together, it looks like one thing, right? but you know, you kind of got to parse them by style and what they do. So a long short equity guy looks nothing like a dedicated short seller, which looks nothing like a managed futures, of course. Totally. But that, but that gets back to, but see, here's the interesting thing. So you got to think about what's the set of factors that could be available to a broad multi-asset class portfolio, right? And so let's combine those factors we talked about on the equity side, primarily, you know, we'll say the market factor, the size factor, value, and momentum. Let's combine the factors on the fixed income side, term and credit. And it turns out there's a couple of other risk premium kind of related to value and momentum um, that are available through through futures-based strategies. And, you know, long, short commodity momentum is an example. Trend following, which I know you're a big proponent of, Meb, is another example. In the uh, currency space, it turns out there's a return premium to basically uh, to basically a carry trade, which is owning high interest uh, yielding currencies and shorting the, the low interest yielding so, ones. And, and why this is important is that as the markets get more competitive and efficient, you have what formerly was seen as alpha, what people exactly. could yeah. buy that was hard to capture, that people didn't understand, increasingly get commoditized as what we call maybe alternative beta or beta, meaning you can distill it to a simple rules-based strategy people shouldn't charge much for it. So you can go buy a Vanguard value fund, maybe a bad example, or, or a momentum fund and pay less than half a percent. Whereas most active managers charge one, one and a half or two and 20. And so you say in one of your papers, you said, you know, essentially, look, a lot of these guys, you can distill down to these low cost sort of factor based strategies. However, you do admit that you said, you know, focus on your asset allocation, but consider expanding your universe to either capture unique and different risk premia available from alternative assets. Maybe talk a little bit about that. Or right. is, is there, right. do you guys spend a time in search of, you know, ways that there's unique sort of factors or managers or active managers or quants? Like what's your approach to say, all right, this, whole area has been commoditized, but maybe there's still value over here. You, you know, you hit on a number of things and I'll try to take them one by one, or at least <laughs> at least yeah. the ones I want to take. Yeah. So first, yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, 30 years ago, you would have seen a manager who beat the S&P 500 over, the long, over a 10 or 15 year track record. And you would have said he's a great manager. Nowadays we have, you know, value factors. We can run regressions and we can test, you know, was that really skill or was that just generic exposure and a tilt towards value stocks that nowadays we can implement in a very efficient, low cost way. And, you know, 99 out of 100 times, you know, we find that's exactly the case. So nowadays, you know, that what used to be skill and a credit to that manager back in the day before we knew all this stuff, you know, that was skill back then because they had inside information that the rest of us didn't have. Now that we know that it's a different story, we're going to pay for what's worth paying for. So that's that on the issue of, you know, just to get back on the question of hedge funds. You know, we would apply a total portfolio, a total, we call it a portfolio factor model to hedge funds because we don't really know with any individual hedge fund the mix of risk premium risk factors they may be trying to, they may be trying to capture. And when we do that, what we find is that different hedge fund strategies, whether you're talking about equity long short, event driven, relative value, macro, whatever it is, they're nothing more than just different bundles of these risk premia. That's all they are. Now, getting to your, your last question, Again, that was the key insight of that paper, not just recognizing that, but then what are the portfolio implications? Well, most of our clients, most of your clients, most people own generic portfolios of stocks, bonds, and cash. But 
it turns out that there are other risk premia out there that are different than just long only stocks, bonds, and cash that you can own in a long short framework, whether we're talking about value and equities that you own long short and you lever up to some expected return, or you're talking about a currency premium, as I noted uh, you know, a moment ago, you go long high yielding currencies and short low yielding currencies, and then you lever that up to a suitable expected return. Whether you're talking about trend following is another sort of source that's, a, that's different than just long only stocks and bonds and cash. And so fundamentally, once you know these things and you can find a manager who can be really efficient and cost effective in the implementation without all the bells and whistles and nonsense, you have a very good approach to expanding beyond a very traditional portfolio of stocks, bonds, cash. And, w- and what do you think some of these, I mean, maybe the ones you just mentioned are the examples, but what do you think are some of the best diversifiers to a traditional portfolio? So stocks, bonds, cash, if you had to add something, go talk to a policy portfolio committee and say, all right, you guys got stocks, bond, cash. You can only add one or two things. What would you add? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great question. And I think to answer that from the perspective of how I think about things, I need to actually step back one more step. Mm-hmm. I think about, so there's backward-looking statistical significance and then my own forward-looking confidence. A lot of these risk factors have what we'll call statistical significance far higher than the significance of bonds returning a premium over cash or equities returning a premium over cash. So you think about momentum or trend following, for example, what we call T-statistics or the statistical significance of those strategies are huge going back in history. Some strategies are harder to implement than just owning bonds or just owning cash, right? There's transaction costs involved, taxes. These are very practical drags that have to be considered. So I think about it from a confidence perspective. I know that we live in a basically a capitalist society that fundamentally funds our economy with debt and equity, right? And debt and equity is essentially term risk, is essentially term risk and market risk. So on a forward-looking perspective, when I look at risk premiums that I have the highest confidence level in, I look at the market factor, the returns of equities over cash, and I look at the term factor, the returns of, of bonds over cash. So that's my starting point, and that's why most people own stock bond cash portfolios, I'm quite sure. Now, there may be, looking back, a lot of statistical significance with you know value trades in particular, momentum trades in particular, trend following in particular. The strength of this significance is stronger in some asset classes than other asset classes. And you know we focus in on those where the significance is greater, tends to be less significant phenomenon in bonds than it may be, say, in currencies or, um, or equities in particular. And so that's kind of how I look at it. I, you know, if you're looking to diversify your portfolio more or capture more return, your next confident place to go after finding that optimal asset allocation between stocks, bonds, and cash, I would say is to different sources of, you know, different variations of value and momentum across certain asset classes. I think that's the next confident place to go. You know, we always talk about, do you guys, do you like managed futures? Hate it? Yeah, no, I mean, to us, managed futures is simply trend. Yeah. And so then the question becomes, you know, again, you know, is it, is it a so-called skilled manager who has some sort of a managed future strategy or is this fundamentally nothing more than a very basic generic trend strategy? You know, and that becomes your, your risk factor. And, and, you know, similar to that value manager, I gave you an example with a long time ago. I mean, I've looked at a number of managed future strategies that have come across my desk and I could say it's a very similar story to what we've seen with like value managers 20 years ago. What you thought was skill is just a risk premium. And that's true with, yeah, with managed I mean, futures. I, I think, I mean, look, managed futures, trend falling guys, I love you. It's my desert island strategy if I had to pick just one, but I think the vast majority of them, you could write down rules that are not too different than what Charles Dow wrote down 
a hundred years ago and quantify it and then be pretty similar. You know, there's devils in the details, of course, but I think in general, the basics of it, I agree. It's, it's not in my mind a two and 20 strategy, but something that could be implemented for, for pretty cheap. And it seems like a lot of them do pretty similar style strategy. Well, 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 Matt, let me give you a good good example. And I mean, we've, I'm not going to name names, but I mean, there are a number of... Go ahead. Go ahead. Fire (laughs) away. No, I can't (laughs) because for many reasons. But, you know, the really interesting thing in my mind, and again, it gets back to utilizing these tools, utilizing these methods in sophisticated tools. And again, you can't buy any of these tools off the shelf. You got to build them yourselves because, you know, there aren't vendors selling the same type of academic risk factor exposures as we're using. And so I'll give an example on trend. And, and again, I, you know, I put like trend as sort of a, a distant cousin of momentum when I mentioned value and momentum being kind of, you know, the two premium across asset classes I'd be interested in outside of stocks, bonds, and cash. And just, just a quick note for readers. I mean, momentum is comparing assets. Hypothetically, is gold doing better than, you know, stocks or bonds over a 12 month period? That's a traditional thing about a car is going around a racetrack. Which one's in the lead? Which one's accelerating? Whereas trend is simply, is a market going up or down? And there's many ways to look at it, but that's kind of the basic differentiation between the two. Keep going. So the interesting thing is when you evaluate these managers, we have, you know, we have available to us a very generic trend following strategy, you know, as a risk factor. And it's very simple to implement. And fundamentally, what's interesting is we can run regressions against their performance. And what you find is they'll have a beta or an exposure, which by the way, you can dial in your own trend beta by using leverage or deleveraging with cash, right? So it's not so much how much return you want. You can choose that yourself. And what we find is it's all of the beta. And then there's a lot of idiosyncratic or uncompensated risk. So their strategy as they communicate it to you around the table may be very complicated and nuanced with all these different issues with regard to time horizons and trend signals. But at the end of the day, what does it aggregate to? It aggregates not to nothing more than some exposure to this generic trend strategy and a bunch of additional risk in all of those, those active bets. This reminds me of a quote, and I may have used this on the podcast. I'm sorry if I have, but I love quoting Charlie Munger. And he has a quote where he, he, he tells a joke. He says, you know, there's this guy and he went into a fishing shop and he was looking at all these lures and he asked the store manager, he finds one in particular, he's like, and it's purple with streamers that are sparkling and everything else. And he says, wow, he's like, this is amazing. It's $20 lure. He says, the fish actually bite this. And the store manager looks at the fisherman, he says, you know, with a smile, he says, sir, I'm not selling to the fish. <laughs> you know, so a lot of the investment managers, you know, that, that dress up these highly intricate, complex strategies, in many ways, allocating to a simple blend of these various factors could accomplish the same thing. It's actually kind of ironic because I was fishing last week in Western Colorado outside of Gypsum and Dotsero and Eagle, if you know where that is. But I was with a, a fish, my brother and a fishing guide and the fishing guide pulls out, I think it was a pheasant tail. We were fly fishing that was literally purple with a little like, you know, streamer on it, which then caught a bunch of fish. And I was dying laughing because I'd never seen a purple fly before. And I was asking him about it. He says, yeah, yeah, the fish love it here. So who knows? Maybe, maybe (laughs) there's something to that, that joke. But, but so you kind of see this as a commoditization of strategies over time. If you look back, you know, 50 years ago, and there's a good book and I'm blanking on the name of it, but it was about the Harvard endowment and how they were very early into a lot of asset classes such as timber. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, as more and more people get into it, 
it gets a little commoditized and it makes me think of even simple value strategies. So when Fama and others were talking about price to book was one of the first ones. And then price to book since publication, and it used to be, may not be anymore DFA's favorite value factor. It's been the, one of the worst of the value factors, maybe because a lot of money chases it. I don't know. But in general, it becomes something where when money in, Here's a, here's a good kind of question for you real quick, because there's been a lot of debate about this recently in the investment community. We have people lining up on both sides, whether it's Rob or not, whether it's Cliff Asnes talking about these smart beta factors. And some people say, yes, you should just allocate to the ones you like and kind of, you know, wash your hands and, and be done with it. And others say, well, actually, you need to incorporate valuation of these actual factors. So for example, is are low vol stocks cheap or expensive relative to their history? Are value stocks cheap or expensive, et cetera? And Research Affiliates has written a lot about this. And he says, actually, yes, you should take that into account because you may have a factor strategy that because of its expensive nature is actually negates the entire premium you may get. Do you guys think about that at all? Yeah, Do you no. look at it? Do you get excited yeah. about smart beta timing and all these things? Or what's, what's your opinion on that? You know, you, you, you hit a bunch of, a bunch of things there. The first thing I'm going to say really quickly is you mentioned low vol and it's really interesting because when you add those two quality factors, I noted profitability and low investment to all those low vol strategies that sort of goes away. So fundamentally, that gets back to we have to be careful in defining factors because sometimes they're redundant with existing factor definitions. Similarly, you know, the value premium or the value phenomenon, I mean, it's sort of a, you know, regardless of how you define it, it's sort of a, you know, it's all a manifestation of the same underlying phenomenon. So you can use price to book, PE ratio, price to cash flow ratios, EBITDA rate. I mean, whatever you use, you'll find that as you build those returns, they're all linear combinations of each other, which basically means they're different manifestations of each other. But, you know, over a five-year period, they may look and feel a little bit different. But in terms of the entire return premium, they're fundamentally the same. And so, again, it requires this set of tools and understanding of, you know, what I wouldn't say is necessarily a commoditization of products, but of, but a recognition of the fundamental underlying risk factors that seem to have dri- driven portfolio and, and strategy returns really since the beginning of empirical research. Will they be arbitraged away? And then I'll get to your question of factor timing. Will they be arbitraged away? I don't see any evidence of that right now. You know, that said, if they did, that is really a testament to adaptive and efficient markets because fundamentally that would moving, that would be moving things to Sharp's original cap M. And so that may happen, but I don't see evidence of that simply because, you know, looking at the value premium versus, you know, value stocks versus growth stocks. I mean, obviously value stocks have underperformed the last few years, but that's sort of happened by way of not so much value stocks getting more expensive. It's happened by or getting cheaper but growth stocks getting more expensive. You know, it wouldn't surprise me if that kind of moderates at some point. Now, despite what I just said, you know, the question about factor timing is really a question about mean reversion and the evidence of whether there's mean reversion in, in market returns. There is some very modest evidence in equity markets over an intermediate period, let's say five to seven years, that equity market returns mean revert. It's statistically significant, so it's there, but it's, you know, it's barely statistically significant. And, you know, half of academics argue that equity returns mean revert and the other half don't. So there's certainly a debate over that. So you're not going to be going to the investment committee at the, you know, at any point saying, you know what, we got to get out of Japan or value stocks or whatever because it's gone too crazy, right? Well, again, that goes back to whether there's mean reversion, there's evidence of mean reversion or not. Because if they're, if returns don't mean revert, then they're independent, completely independent. 
independent, which means what just happened has no relevance on what's about to happen. And so let me extend it past the market factor, the credit factor, you know, again, default risk, which I said was related to the market factor. You know, again, there's some modest evidence of mean reversion there. But again, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's easily debatable. As we move beyond those to, you know, the value factor, the size factor, things like that, the evidence is much weaker for mean reversion. So I think my strong practical advice is if you, again, want to move away from a generic portfolio of stocks, bonds, and cash, your next best place is to look to these risk factors. You know, unless you think you're even better at timing the, the equity markets, you shouldn't, you shouldn't dare time these. And the other thing I'll say where I agree with Cliff Asness and his art and his debate with, uh, with Rob Arnott is not only do I think for most people, what I mean by that is everybody, they should stay the course if they decide to take on a factor tilt and just bear with it, much like you'll feel the pain of equity sometimes too when you decide to own equity in a portfolio. It's no different. Market return, market factor is a factor no different than a value factor. You can't say that small stocks are cheap. And so therefore the size factor is attractive because now you are, this is where I agree with Cliff. Now you are fundamentally intermixing a value factor with a size factor. I think it's intuitive to define a value factor by a valuation ratio. Like at least that's intuitive. Whether or not there's mean reversion is a different question. But you know what? You are blending factors and they're supposed to be independent as soon as you take that same paradigm and apply it to size, apply it to momentum, apply it to profitability. And so you have problems in the independence of factors when you do that. I was interviewing at a quant hedge fund in the early 2000s, will remain nameless in San Francisco. And I remember going in and they admitted they used something like 70 or 90 factors. I can't even remember what it was. Just every possible factor you could possibly program into a computer. And I remember thinking, I was like, huh, you know, I feel like most people at this point, they all have the same PhDs. So if you type in a ticker of a multi-factor fund, so LSV, we wrote about in our last book, really famous quants, I think out of Chicago, manage a bunch of quant funds, they've done great. But you type in a ticker of one of their holdings, and you're going to see a laundry list of other quant shops that will own the same stocks. It'll be DE Shaw, maybe AQR, Bridgeway, a bunch of other, a bunch of other shops. And so you do see a lot of the factors that when you have you know, maybe properties of cheap, high quality momentum, whatever it may be, you know, the data sets are such that everyone's got fact set, everyone's got all the same sort of sort of data. So the challenge of finding unique and different factors in a world of, I mean, I remember back in the days of talking to portfolio managers and, and how they used to get value added information. There was bored, a lot of borderline gray areas of legal illegal, mm-hmm. taking a CEO out, getting him drunk and letting him just spill his guts type of ways to trade. That's a lot harder these days, I think. And so on the lookout for new asset classes and factors, I think is pretty tough. And actually, in one of your papers, which you may or may not be able to talk about, cut me off if you can't, that's talking about real estate. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I can talk about that. So sure. I think this is a good example. So a lot of people, and this is timely where you know the, they're splitting out, there's S&P or MSCI, I can't remember, splitting out REITs is a separate sector of the, the universe and looking at real estate investing. You know, a lot of people talk about in the main asset classes, stocks, bonds, currencies, commodities. And a lot of people talk about REITs or real estate as an asset class. But really, it's kind of an amalgamation of some of the other factors or, or asset class you're talking about. No, I mean, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, and, and it's it's private real estate in particular because it's you have smooth returns because of appraisal-based pricing. And so, you know, a lot of people have viewed, I mean, a lot of private investors own private real estate to the almost exclusion of all other asset classes. It's sort of the darling asset class for a lot of investors, a lot of private investors anyway. 
And, you know, what we found there, I mean, you know, to step back, you know, you could pretend you have 70 factors, but again, I mean, we, we prefer to lean on the work and the definitions of the academic space because I can run some tests and show you that 70 factors are reduced to six or seven mm-hmm. true independent, truly independent factors that do, you know, the same explain, have the but same But it sounds so much more rigorous if you can have a, have yeah. a hedge fund that has I mean, it's less rigorous. 3,000 <laughs> you've, you've loosened. It's less, it's less rigorous because you've, you've weakened and loosened your definitions. And and you have a but lot how of do you sell a fund that only yeah. has three factors? That's so much <laughs> right. harder. Right. All right, keep going. Yeah. So and I mean, here's the interesting thing. I mean, in a nutshell, I mean, again, real estate is the darling asset class. It's you know, from an institutional perspective, it has these powerful diversification benefits. From a private wealth perspective, you know, you talk to all sorts of people we encounter who you know they don't want to own diversified multi asset class portfolios. They're fine with their you know seven or eight apartment buildings and two commercial real estate properties. The really interesting work here is. Well, let's step back and what we did in this paper, and it continues to be a working paper, but you know, we evaluated REITs knowing that, okay, at the end of the day, REITs are essentially traded income producing properties that, you know, have some leverage built in them, equity REITs anyway. And, you know, we know that, hey, well, that is effectively real estate, you know, very, very similar to a core real estate portfolio that may not be traded on an exchange and may be levered or may not be levered. And so we took a look at, at REITs and we said, okay, based on this factor based perspective, what are REITs? You know, do these risk factors do a good job of, ex- of describing them? And in a nutshell, what I can say is that, you know, REITs are interesting and not interesting at the same time. What they are is really they, they offer a surprisingly uh, rich mix of factors that are really analogous to a portfolio that may be something like 60% small value stocks. So again, size factor, value factor, market factor, 60% and 40% high yield bonds. So again, factors, term factor, credit factor, and high yield bonds. And so that's really interesting. And I think that 60-40, that risk-tilted 60-40 portfolio explains why among so many private investors, they're comfortable with just a real estate allocation. Now, here's the interesting the, the interesting thing. Because it ends up looking like a diversified stock right. bond almost. Yeah. Hey, I have a diversified 60-40 portfolio that's risk-tilted with small value and term and credit betas. Now, here's the interesting thing, though. We can replicate that with a stock and bond only portfolio that utilizes these engineered or smart beta concepts with far less risk than that REIT strategy. So you wouldn't just own those REITs because fundamentally that's suboptimal. You can own the same compensated return premium that comes with those REITs for far less risk in an engineered beta solution that includes intentional exposures or betas to small value stocks and to high yield bonds. Okay, that's REITs. And I know what you're saying. I don't own publicly traded REITs. You know, I have, you know, my seven or eight apartment buildings and my two or three commercial office buildings, you know, in my area. And that's what I own. And the interesting thing is we can run additional unsmoothing tests. And I think that's the other novelty of the papers. We introduce a new approach to unsmoothing private equity or private real estate returns that are consistent with risk factor betas. And what we find then is when we do that, the entire return premium of private real estate is completely explained by basically their current and lagged exposures to REIT returns. And in fact, there's additional risk that's uncompensated in private real estate, unexplained, but uncompensated. So again, even in the private real estate space, again, it boils down to these risk factors you can own in stock bond portfolios. So why even bother with private well, real estate? Well, I think, you know, and the, the same is true of private equity, except we observe a robust or statistically significant alpha in private equity. 
That may be due to a higher prevalence of manager skill in private equity than public equity. It may be because of, you know, asymmetric information, um, sourcing ability, whatever, or an illiquidity premium that comes along with private equity. So, but in private real estate, we actually don't observe that, that same alpha like we do in private equity. So that's a, that's a great question. And I, and in the paper, we leave it to future research. There could be a higher prevalence of alpha among a small subset of managers. And so we make that argument for hedge funds, for example. Although on average, hedge funds may not be attractive. You know, there could be a small minority of them if you employ these risk factor tools and methods that contribute meaningful value to your portfolio, whether quant or or sort of traditional uh, skill-based. And the same may be true of, of private real estate. We just, you know, again, on average, it's not the case, but it could be that a small subset offer, you know, robust alphas that could significantly improve a portfolio of generic stocks, bonds, and cash. And this is kind of a similar topic than another one of your papers that probably may have originally brought us together. I can't remember, but maybe 10 years ago. Wow. Where you were talking about the Yale Endowment. And I think the title was something like the Yale Endowment Returns. Is it skill or is it just risk exposure? Maybe you could walk people through just kind of the thought experiment you did with the Yale Endowment, which has been one of the best performing institutions over the past 30 years, and kind of the experiment you did and kind of conclusions you came to from that portfolio. And we'll talk a little bit about private equity uh, in that context too. Obviously a very interesting topic, and it really gets back to Again, risk factors applied to portfolios, applied to asset classes. We talked about real estate and hedge funds and applied to managers. And in this case, we're applying it to portfolios. The issue has been these endowments really only report once a year, which means, you know, even if they've been reporting for 20 years, we only have 20 return observations, which make it a little difficult to run traditional return and risk attribution on them. And so in that particular paper, we took more of a, a holdings-based perspective based on how they were describing their allocations. And we tried to replicate those allocations from a holdings-based perspective. And in reading through their annual reports, you realize their equity allocations tended to be small cap oriented, value oriented, things like that, that we then were able to rebuild their portfolio and, and run a number of tests. And ultimately, we concluded that the unique source of their excess return was fundamentally explained by really just their allocation to venture capital. Really, everything else was replicable, again, by a pretty straightforward factor-tilted portfolio that could be owned in, in, a, in, a, you know, in a portfolio of long-only stocks, bonds, and cash, traditional assets. And really, we were able to kind of disentangle or decompose those returns so that we were able to identify that it was, it was uniquely venture capital. And since then, I can't remember the authors. There have been one or two additional papers that they didn't, unfortunately, they didn't cite my work because they probably wouldn't have written their papers if they had read it, but they actually confirmed independently. They came to a similar conclusion. As a follow-on to that, about a year or two ago at, at Northern Trust, we wrote an investment commentary that expanded it beyond Yale and kind of looked at it, let's call it, you know, an overall Ivy League endowment portfolio. And I know you've done a lot of work on that, Meb. And, you know, similarly, looking at all of these portfolios, again, we're able to kind of dial it down into risk factors on average, you know, even among sort of let's call them elite investors, those that run Ivy portfolios, all you had to do is, you know, kind of expand it to private equity and that premium involved in private equity, as we noted, venture capital in particular, and you were able to really explain away you know, all of the Ivy, Ivy League endowment excess return. So, you know, it's not a manager skill issue. It's really just thoughtful long-term allocations to risk premium in public markets and in private markets, areas where there is either an illiquidity premium or, you know, things like venture capital where, you know, skill and sourcing matter. We'll give them credit in the sense the one thing they did do well is that decades ago, they did have a global allocation and did start to tilt, whether through his active managers or through 
Quant strategies, too many of the things we're talking about. So they were early in many cases yeah, to a lot of these. And I agree, Meb, and I think that's a skill. And so, again, I don't want to discount that because I think that's precisely right. I mean, it's like Warren Buffett's returns. You know, a couple academics from AQR have been able to replicate it with a combination of value, profitability, uh, which are now factors, as we know, and, uh, you know, the leverage he gets through his float. And so that's a, that's a classic example. Yeah, it's great to do it sort of ex post. And now that we know that, that is informative on a forward-looking basis. But it's another thing to actually realize that 20 or 30 years ago and implement it. And back then, nobody knew that, so that was skill. I totally agree. So hypothetically speaking, and we did an article called should CalPERS be managed by a robot? And the thinking was, hey, look, they have this large global allocation. You could just go buy a bunch of ETFs or for them, probably just low cost, separate accounts, replicate their portfolio, not have to worry about all the headache of managing this with 300 employees, et cetera, et cetera. But theoretically, if you're an institution, you say, take a step back, a very honest step back at this point, say, you know what? All right, for these main asset classes and strategies, we can allocate to these alternative beta, smart beta, whatever you want to call it, these simple rules-based or tilted funds. And then we're going to dedicate our entire resources to the place where we really can add value like private equity. So, I mean, should Yale just index everything and then go say, hey, we're just going to yeah. focus on finding the best of breed private equity. And then that's that. I mean, would that be a reasonable? I mean, that seems like that would be a reasonable idea. Yeah, I think it's reasonable. But of course, there's agency costs that are involved with regard to yeah. <laughs> professionals who, you know, sit on the investment committee, you know, and then there's also a, there's also a sizing issue, right? I mean, you get so large, can you even get a meaningful enough allocation to hedge funds, for example, knowing that when you are aware of these tools and methods, really, it's only a small subset that are interesting. Can you even get to the allocation necessary to move the needle and improve your portfolio enough? And I think there's probably more you can do in private equity than hedge in that regard. But, you know, I mean, the, the you know, committed capital in private equity is not too much different than what's investable, invested capital in hedge funds today. I mean, I think the interesting example is, you know, Norway's so- sovereign wealth fund where, you know, they went down this pathway and pretty much decided what they're going to do is have sort of broad global exposure that's passive or semi-passive, and they're going to try to harvest risk premium that we've been talking about. And I think it's a recognition that once you get so large, it probably makes sense to do some form of that, if not indexing, some form of you know passive or semi-passive investing that's that you can implement and kind of stay the course. The other thing I will say, the value that a lot of these pension plans, these large plans can can offer isn't so much on well, I mean, a lot of it is really thoughtful fulfillment, but I think they're way off on their asset allocation. They're not realistic about the liability profile they have, the return assumptions in this environment that are necessary to achieve those and the implications for, you know, funding ratios, et cetera. Yeah, we tweet, tweeted out a study that showed what, you know, a lot of these plans still expect is for their for their returns and particularly for their hedge fund returns. And it was so crazy that I can't even begin to go back to it. Well, let me just step back a second. And what amazes me is among a lot of those folks, there's not even an understanding of the difference between an arithmetic expected return and a geometric one. A geometric one is what you actually get to earn and consume. But people model portfolio optimization and Monte Carlos with arithmetic returns. And so they're embedding in expected returns that are typically arithmetic, not understanding the geometrics lower. I mean, not everybody, but I encounter this so much, it scares me. We, we call those volatility gremlins is what we <laughs> right, talked about. Right, right, right. We, the, the, I just looked it up. Institutional investors expected their hedge funds to return 13% net. 13%. Let's forget about the actual hedge funds have returned, what, half of that. 
historically, even the best performing index. That's, and this is also something you showed in one of your papers. 13% net means at two and 20, that's about what? 20% gross. Yeah. It's well, I mean, <laughs> there's a bigger issue there. You can, when you realize the risk factors that drive hedge fund returns, and then you have expected returns for each of these risk, risk factors, that goes way down far below equity, somewhere between bonds and equity. You know, as an example, we can show you that the average hedge fund is roughly approximated by a simple factor mix that you could say is about 35% equity and the rest cash. That's the risk return profile of the average hedge fund out there. Hmm. So you can associate with, with no statistically significant alpha, by the way. So you can associate an expected return of, you know, whatever your forecast is for cash, which is close to zero, and then equities and then take a third of it. Now, again, that's the average <laughs> and what you should be interested in with hedge funds are unique and different sources of return, not necessarily high returns, because you're really the, the value of a, of a select hedge fund is a diversification well, value. We all know hedge, all the hedge funds we know are better than average, right? <laughs> We're all better than average on average. <laughs> one, one, one more question. Well, here's a Twitter question for you. And we'll probably start winding down because we're hitting the hour mark. We had a Twitter question in, and it was aimed at me, but I will kind of let you tackle it first. They said, Meb, how do you know when a strategy, and we can apply this to factors too, or even active managers, and it may be a different answer for each, but how do you know when it basically no longer works? Or how do you know when it's been commoditized? Or how do you know, you know that it's time to sell something that previously you had a reason for buying? Take that broadly. Answer any of those variants yeah. that you think. But how do you know when, when your strategy no longer works? Yeah, I think that's a very, very, very tough one. And I don't think you'll know for 10 or 15 years. I mean, that's part of the problem. I think you don't know anything in this business. You, you can only attach confidence levels to them. And I think to be a good investor, you got to start thinking that way. It's not black or white. Everything's gray. There's an expected outcome. There's a variance around that expected outcome. And with that comes confidence levels or well, essentially confidence levels. And so, you know, I'll give you an example. Like there are many times in history that a value premium or value tilt would have underperformed a growth tilt or the, you know, or the market for five or 10 years or more didn't mean that it stopped working, it turns out. A lot of these things, you know, empirical research where you have evidence that supports a claim really takes time to play out. So, you know, I think as time goes by, you have to evaluate, you know, all of the past empirical research and look at it and you have to make a judgment call. And then that's what, you know, we think about it the same way where we look at a lot of these strategies and we, we say we only want to allocate to strategies that are pretty basic and you can explain and understand and basically explain to a 15-year-old and say, this is why this works. And value and a lot of these people can get on board with pretty easily. The challenge, I think, of course, comes with particularly active strategies and active managers. So where you have a lot of other factors at play is that how big are they? You know, they, they have too much money to manage that they can't allocate. Do they just have a divorce that you yeah. may not know about and they go on tilt? Or, you know, is, is, are they uh, many other things going on and active? Because you're betting on the active manager is a lot harder, I think, than actually a quant style strategy because you can look at kind of reasons why it works or doesn't yeah. work. It's, well, it's a hard question, I think. Well, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll take it a step further and say the challenge there is that what you think is outperformance may just be factor risk. And then even if you, even if you observe outperformance after solving for factor risk, then you have to ask yourself, is it likely random? Or is it likely statistically significant and therefore true? And almost nobody does that. I mean, we do that all the time at Northern Trust as we evaluate the active managers we use. But it's a critical question because 
a lot of managers will just perform well, even risk adjusted randomly. And you have to solve for whether what you are observing is likely true skill or randomness. And I can tell you that the prevalence of true alpha that's statistically significant is very, very, very thin across all asset classes. And without these tools and methods, I'd say good luck. But with them, you know, you have you have a chance. And I think that the chances in, you know, maybe less than one or two percent of managers per asset class. Um, it exists gross of fees better than net. So it's very much a function of finding those managers. And if you can negotiate their, their fees down, uh, that's what's really required to get there. There's a lot of papers in the academic literature that talk about asset classes and active strategies and say, actually, these guys do generate some alpha. They just take all of it in their fees and maybe yeah. then, and maybe then some. Yeah. I, th- I think that's kind of what we've found. And I think sometimes the trick is, if you have the ability, and you know, again, we're a large organization, so we do, but you have the ability to kind of negotiate down fees as low as possible. You know, when you find a manager who has raw pure skill, regardless of expenses they charge, that interests me. And then the question is, can we get it so that the fees, sur- that the, the skill survives the fees? And, you know, usually the answer is no, but hopefully you're able to find a couple that can. And then you got to ask yourself about confidence levels, right? So I believe in the market factor going forward more than I believe in the value factor or the momentum factor, but I believe in the value factor and the momentum factor going forward more than I believe in the persistence of an individual manager's alpha. So, I mean, I'd imagine we could go on for another hour or two, but we'll have to just have you back on in another six, 12 months and see what other papers you've written. I'm going to ask you one more question. We asked all the guests if there's anything that you could thought of that you find particularly beautiful, useful, or somewhat magical. Any ideas here? <laughs> yeah. You asked me to think about this a little bit. And, you know, I, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of hit something I've been thinking about more recently. It's more of a, I think it's an insight, but maybe not. For folks like us, Meb, sometimes I think we work more than we should. And I find myself, maybe it's the curiosity in me, I find myself, you know, up at 11 o'clock at night writing some paper that I don't need to write for my career. (laughs) And I wonder why I'm doing it. And and I realize I shouldn't be doing it, actually. And, you know, I'm trying to find that balance, you know, between, between sort of these things that I do find interesting, but, you know, the rest of my life that has absolutely nothing to do with this. And I've kind of recently realized I've tried a number of things, whether it's, you know, I, I play tennis, I love to go fishing. It's first I heard, I didn't realize you were a fisherman. Uh, we got to connect on that later. Mm-hmm. But I, I've realized really, really lately that although I've tried a number of things since I've been 20, for example, I find myself reverting back to and enjoying the things I enjoyed when I was sort of in sixth, seventh and eighth and ninth grade. You know, kind of, I think there's a, you know, a formative time then kind of around middle, middle school where, I find myself just loving those things and fishing's an example of that or playing tennis or whatever may be the case. As a part of that, you know, the things I've learned later, I've been less good at and less persistent with. And as part of that, I'm, you know, I have two young girls now and I'm, and they're coming of that age now. I just want to make sure they have enough experiences between sixth grade and ninth grade so that when they are adults, you know, they'll have these hobbies and these interests that they'll love to go back to because they're the things they enjoyed when they were that age. You're heading to Europe soon, right? I am. Yeah. We're going, uh, we're going on vacation to actually to Croatia where I have some. My family's background and it's beautiful Dalmatian coast. I, I just I had spent some a couple fr- weeks there. I so. just had some friends that were sailing that coast and had, I, I was jealously looking at all of their photos. It looks pretty, <laughs> yeah, pretty there's, awesome. There's a thousand plus islands, great history. It's kind of like Greece, but a little further north, a huge Roman and Croatian history there. Uh, it's, it's a fabulous, beautiful place. I don't want to market it too much because it's already starting to get too crowded. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to remember back all the things I loved doing in sixth, seventh grade. So obviously playing sports, but 
I mean, it would have been, it wouldn't have been, it would have been laser tag back then. You know, <laughs> there's a, a good investor we'll have on this podcast later who talks about, he says, as the younger generation starts to age and hit kind of middle age and older and starts, you know, having the assets, if you think about investing, but in the collectible space or trading space of art collectibles, it's what did that generation covet when they were younger mm-hmm. and so this generation it may be yeah. classic muscle cars of the 60s and all the things that that people interested in and i'm trying to think about think about it later but things that i would be interested in investing well, in that i really coveted maybe as a ken griffey jr baseball card right i don't know upper deck 89 i mean all i know is i wish i did more things when i was in seventh eighth and ninth grade that i could do as an adult because you're right when you hit sports right i played a lot of basketball and a lot of soccer i just can't do that anymore but i can play tennis right i can go fishing and you know well the one the one that i just got back so after i was on this crazy road trip canada colorado to give a speech and then to Oregon, where I have a bunch of guy friends that are, I was by far the worst golfer. And so band and dunes, we went and played and, uh, I'd bought some clubs and rushed to get a handicap, but what a beautiful location. The biggest challenge I have with golf, it is such a massive time chunk. Right. You know, it's a straight up four to six hours. That's pretty tough. If I could just go out and no one else is out there and go play, put in a podcast. That's a great example. I mean, you know, whether it's golf or sailing, another thing I, used to do a lot of you know they both take a lot of time and so the trick is finding these things that don't take as much time but you still enjoy and love and and again if you get kids i'm trying to think about those things so they learn how to do them and yeah, that just drag age, them along so. just drag <laughs> yeah, them exactly. along all right well mine is totally different and is a website called fiverr have you heard of this no it's f-i-v-e-r-r it's a website where you can go on and basically pay anyone five bucks to do anything and that's that's a that's a stretch but say say you need a logo or you want someone to call your friend and sing him happy birthday in al pacino's voice or uh there's a couple i did where for valentine's day one time i had a bunch of drawings done and you know it's look first of all it's five bucks so none of these are going to be you know leonardo type drawings but they're really some of them actually became very good and some of them are really funny and an interesting story and we'll play this in a following podcast because i don't have it on me but we if anyone's ever heard Tosh.0, uh, the comedian on Comedy Central, he has a disclosure in the beginning he reads where it's, it's like, don't try this at home. These you know are things that will kill you if you do this at home. But he had someone dub it where it was Barack Obama's voice you know, from all of his speeches. And so it's, it's very clear that he's not reading it, that it's cut up, but it's pretty funny. And so we put it on Fiverr, try to get people to, re- we have a disclosure where you read the beginning about Cambria and this is an investment advice, yada, yada. And so we had to try to get it dubbed for both Hillary and Trump ahead of this election time, just to see, and they're so hilariously bad. I wish I had them to play for. I'll play them in the next podcast. And we're certainly not going to include them because they're so horrifically bad, but it's pretty funny. But anyway, this website's wonderful. Even to the point where I was like, this is such a good idea, but why don't they start one where it's 20 bucks instead of five bucks? I was trying to buy the domain 20 spot, but it turns out it's a cafe in San Francisco that wouldn't sell it to me. I don't know if they're still around. I'll have to look up. Anyway, that's a good one to check out. Pete, great having you here today. Where can people find more information if they want to find you somewhere? Is there a good place? Uh, right now, it's just go to nt.com and you could stick my name in there under, um, you know, our research or our experts, uh, research insights. You can, you can view a lot of these papers that, you know, Meb and I have been talking about today. We put out a piece at least every quarter, often more, and I try to do 
uh, you know, an academic paper once or, you know, every year or two. So, you know, it'll keep coming. So. Well, good. Thanks for being here. Look, as a reminder, listeners, you can always find the show notes. We'll link to all of Pete's papers that the internet will let us, but you can always find the other episodes at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. Thanks for taking the time to listen today. We always welcome feedback and questions for the mailbag. We'll read them in future podcasts on air at feedback at com, You can always subscribe to the show on iTunes. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a review. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Good investing.